Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series in the book of Ephesians. Just to situate you, we've seen in the first half of the book, Paul lays out this incredible good news that in Christ, God is bringing back the world to himself. In Christ, God is taking a world that's broken and fractured and restoring it to himself, and he's starting by building a reconciled people, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, white and black, men and women, all into one church, one family, as a sign to the world that in Christ he's reconciling all things and making all things new. And so this morning, uh, as we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, we're in the section of this letter where Paul is taking that big picture gospel, that big picture announcement of good news, and he's starting to help these early Christians figure out how to apply it and how to live it out in their lives. And so, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Good morning. This um, this morning's reading comes from Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melodies to the Lord your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord, as to the Lord. For the husband is the, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Jesus, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as christ does the church because we are members of his body Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Jesus and or to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word, and it is given to you in love. All right, you can be seated. Oh, well, it is, uh, let me first say, it's just good to be back. Uh, it's good to be back with you guys. I was out last week on a, uh, a fishing trip in the middle of a tropical storm, which was great planning, um, but we had, a, we had a great time away. And uh, it's a good time for a vacation between uh, the sermon on sexual ethics and uh, the one on marriage and submission, and uh, before the one next week on submission in the family and between servants and masters. There's a lot of, uh, this is some thick stuff, and so a vacation was appropriate. <laughs> You know, as a, as a pastor and as a, somebody who does a fair bit of counseling, I, 
I do a lot of premarital counseling. It tends to be a time when people will come in for, for counseling with their pastor or with, with a counselor uh, who might not otherwise uh, come in for counseling, but there's the idea that I'm headed into marriage. I need to talk to somebody about this. And uh, one of the things that I'll do with them is I have this great inventory, a great test uh, that we'll do called Prepare and Rich. And something you do, the two fiancés take the test, and the, the goal is, is it lines up uh, and helps them to figure out where are the areas where their expectations for marriage overlap and where are the areas uh, where they don't overlap, where they might be coming into marriage with vastly different expectations. And so it shows couples, hey, here's some strengths for you as a couple. Here's some areas where you have high compatibility as husband and wife, and you can expect those to be areas of, of strength and comfort. And here are some areas, I don't think they use the word incompatibility. That's, uh, I think they say tension or growth opportunities for you as a couple. Um, but here are some areas where your expectations for what this marriage is going to be like might differ wildly. Whether it's in the areas of, uh, of the way you handle your finances, or the way that you handle intimacy, both physical and emotional, the ways that you run, uh, run your household, or the ways that you raise your children. It's good before you get married to figure out if you're coming into this thing with, with vastly different ideas about what it's going to be like. And the hard thing about doing premarital counseling is that absolutely nobody wants to hear about their areas of incompatibility when the wedding invitations are already in the mail. Right? Once, once brides are talking about dresses and flowers, uh, something happens where you kind of block out the ability to hear, hey, I think you guys have some real issues that you're heading into. And I almost just am tempted to say, actually, you know, here's my card. Call me in six months. Uh, when, you get, when, when, the, when the excitement and the hormones and all that kind of gets back in the background a little bit, and you realize that, man, these, these areas really are going to be growth areas was a euphemism, <laughs> right? These are going to be difficult areas for us in our marriage. There was an article uh, by an English uh, philosopher, Alan DeBotton, uh, that ran in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago had the provocative title of why you will marry the wrong person. Why you will marry the wrong person. It's an interesting title. And here's the way he starts. He says, it's one of the things that we are most afraid might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. Partly it's because we have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to others. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser and more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on any early dinner date would be, and just how are you crazy? Um, but we don't realize how crazy we are, right? We don't realize our dysfunction and all that until you, until you get married, until you start to realize, oh, I'm free to be myself, and the other person's free to be themselves. And then when you see yourselves, you go, oh, yourself is difficult. Yourself has quirks. Yourself can be, can be difficult to love. And so what we're going to talk about uh, today is the hope that we have in marriage. Because realistically, uh, incompatibility in marriage shouldn't scare us. Uh, it shouldn't be something uh, that we run away from. Because it's actually the very place uh, in your marriage where you actually get the invitation to discover the gospel in some really fresh and new ways. Because here's, here's the secret. Here's the, what the Bible tells us is that no two sinners are compatible, right? There's no such thing as two sinners, which the Bible tells us that we all are, ultimately being compatible with each other. For, for every one of us, my sin, my selfishness, my commitment to get my own way is ultimately going to step on the toes 
of anyone who's asked to share a bedroom and a bathroom with me for 50 years. Right? We're going to offend each other. We're going to, our claims of our own rights and having things our own way are going to infringe on others. And so the, the tension in marriage and the invitation to come to know Jesus in our marriages, the invitation to be changed in our marriage, is as we bump up against those areas of difficult compatibility and we learn to submit ourselves to one another, to lay down our lives for one another. And so we're going to look this morning uh, at marriage, uh, at the context of marriage, the crucible of marriage, and then the hope of marriage, which I think we'll, we'll see from this passage. First, the, the context of marriage. You know, this, this can be difficult for us because the context in which Paul wrote uh, was vastly different uh, than the context in which we live our lives. And so, you know, just in the very next chapters, or in the, in the very next chapter in Ephesians, Paul is going to continue this explanation of submitting to one another in love. He's going to talk about how it looks in marriage. Then he's going to talk about the way it looks in parenting. And then the way he's going to talk about the way that it looks between servants and masters. And we enter into this world and recognize that it's a strange world. It's a world where there, there are servants and masters, where there is a lifelong submission of adult children to, to, to parents where there is kind of a different cultural world that Paul's writing into. And so we have to try uh, to understand it as best we can in order to understand uh, the, the impact of it in our own context. What Paul's doing here in the back half of Ephesians 5 and then on into Ephesians 6 is a form of, of writing that would have been known to his ancient audience. It's something that's often called a household code. Most of the Roman philosophers wrote household codes. These were instructions uh, usually written to a man for the way that he should order his household, his life, his, all of those people under his purview and authority rightly. And so this is Paul's version of a household code. Aristotle, uh, the great Roman philosopher, Greek philosopher, did the same thing. He has a brief household code where he writes to husbands about how to manage their relationships with their wives. He writes to fathers about how to manage their relationships with their children, and he writes to masters on how to manage their relationships with their household servants. Because the Roman household was, was very different uh, than the households that we know today. You might have heard of uh, the, the scattered Latin that we pick up along the way. One of the phrases that we hear sometimes is pater familias. This was one of the bedrocks of, uh, of Roman society, was the man is the head of a household, not just a nuclear family, but of this kind of vast network of relationships. We think of our homes as a place that we go to retreat from the world, right? We, we leave our jobs, and then we come back to the safety of our household, the intimacy of our family. Well, in the Roman world, the, the household was actually a public institution. There would be a, for the wealthy at least, there'd be a man at its head who would have a business. That business would have employees and servants. Their household would be populated by adult children and their families living in and around them. It would have a wife or wives in and around that household, all with the, the authority and the power of the husband, the father, the master, in the middle of it. And so what would have been offensive to, the, to Paul's original audience when they read Paul's household code was a number of things. But one of the things that would have been most offensive to them is that he doesn't just write to the husband, to the father, to the master. He writes to... At, all, at every point to both sides of those relationships, even with the power difference that existed in that culture. 
He writes not just to husbands, but to wives as well. He writes not just to fathers, but to to parents and to children. He writes not just to masters, but to servants. Recognizing that in Christ, each one of these has a call to obedience, has a call to, uh, to love, has a call to unity within the church. So he gives both sides of these relationships the dignity of laying out for them what their obligation is to one another. And then furthermore, his call to to people on both sides of the power differential, to wives as well as husbands, to children as well as parents, is to love and to submission. It's to submit to one another in love. Husbands, laying down your own life for your wife as Christ laid down his life. Fathers, not not exasperating your children, but being gentle, being understanding of them. What he calls Christians to in his context and in ours is to mutual submission. Now, of course, if what was offensive to Paul's generation was the idea that the husband, too, would be called to submit, what's offensive to our generation is that anyone at all would ever be asked to submit to anyone. Right? The very language of submission uh, to us just chafes to say it. The idea that love would involve actually laying down your will, your ideas, to submit your life, to another person, to other people, to a network of relationships, uh, seems antiquated and foolish to us. You know, in the the Roman world, only the husband could really afford to be selfish in a marriage, right? He was the one who who got to to order the the whole household. He was the one who got to pick uh, the wife or the wives and the concubines. He's the one who got to order everything. But now, fundamentally, uh, we do have, all of us have more egalitarian marriages than that. But usually it's an, it's an equalness in selfishness, right? All of, this, all of the studies on marriage show that, that we delay marriage longer and longer uh, than our parents or their parents did. We get married later and later. We do so partly out of an unwillingness to try to align our lives uh, with another's, right? We approach marriage looking primarily all of us, uh, for somebody who's going to bring us fulfillment, for somebody who is going to uh, bring us joy and happiness and compatibility, somebody who's going to help us to achieve our dreams, our goals. So we each now approach marriage fundamentally. And I think if we're honest, we admit this, that we each bring a truckload of selfishness into our marriages, demands that the other conform their lifestyle, their will to ours. And so the call to submit to one another, to submit our lives, to lay down our lives for the flourishing of another is hard for us, and it's deeply offensive uh, to to what we think we're entitled to. And so regardless of context, regardless of ancient culture or contemporary culture, the call to each of us is to lay down our lives for our spouse. You know, uh, so that's the context and the culture. There's also another context that has to be kept in mind here. And that's to remember that Ephesians most likely came to a church in Ephesus. And the way that the letter would have been received is that they would have been sitting in together in a church meeting. And they would have said, hey, we've got a letter from the apostle. We've got a letter from Paul. And they would, have sit, they would have sat down and each of them read it out loud. It would have been read out loud to the whole church. It would have been out loud, read out loud to, to husbands and wives sitting there together to parents and children sitting there together, to servants and masters all sitting there together. 
Because to Paul, all of these other relationships, both domestic and business relationships, all of it is subsumed under the relationships that we have in the church. Right, that marriage is a relationship that happens in the context of the church. That parenting is a relationship that happens in the context of the church. It's what happens in the context of two people uh, who are already uh, anchored and rooted in Christ, who are joined together in the bonds of the church. That's why we, uh, we read the whole passage here, starting in verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, this is, this is something that I think we need in a way that we may not expect. In our culture, romantic love is lifted to the level uh, almost, of, almost of our greatest hope, right? You feel this especially when you're single, that one day I'm going to meet somebody who's going to bring meaning and purpose and fulfillment to my life. I'm going to meet somebody that's going to plus all of my minuses, that's going to make up for all of my weaknesses. I'm not going to be lonely anymore. We, we load up the idea of marriage, the idea of romantic love, with an almost eschatological degree of hope, that that's what's going to make my life fulfilled and happy. And what Paul's saying by situating marriage in the church is first, you can't look to your spouse to fill you. You need to be filled with the Spirit and joined with Christ. You need to come to your spouse with a fullness looking to give, not with an emptiness looking to receive only. And it's subsumed under our relationships in the church. Before you are husband and wife, you are brother and sister. Not in the creepy way. You are, you are brother and sister in Christ before you are husband and wife. The, the root of a healthy marriage is a gospel-centered friendship. It's a friendship in Christ that's committed to doing everything that Paul says here. Encouraging one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody to the Lord in your heart. The, 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 ground, the grounding of a good and healthy marriage is two people who are living into the foundation that they have as brother and sister in Christ. You at least owe your wife or your husband what you owe your, your other brothers and sisters in Christ, which is what? To serve them, to pray for them, to seek after their own growth in Christ, to seek after their, their being built up more and more into the image of Jesus. That marriages can only be healthy and only, only thrive when they're deloaded of all this pressure to have to bring your, your perfect fulfillment because you have a network of other relationships that also contribute to your fullness. And only when they're recognized that the foundation of them is a brotherhood and a sisterhood in Christ. So that's the context for our marriage. The crucible of marriage is what Paul talks about principally here. Uh, crucible uh, is a word that means that something that makes us, something that makes something, forges something into what it will become. And the reality is that our marriages have a power to, to make us and to remake us and to change us, unlike anything else in our lives. They're actually given to us to change us. Just as, as we said, they're, they're, as brother and sister in Christ, we're seeking after 
one another's change, one another's transformation more and more into the likeness of Christ. You know, it's, it's advice that you hear often, uh, which is to not expect your spouse to change. Right? And there's some, there's some wisdom in that. Right? If you're, if, you're, if you're in a dating relationship and you, you find yourself thinking, well, once we get married, then she's going to start being kind to me. <laughs> or once we get married, then he's going to stop looking at other women. Or once we get married, then he's going to, I'll be able to get him to be neater than he is. Like, it'll be fine. No, you prob- that, that's probably foolish. Right? There's probably not going to be an instantaneous change on a fundamental level. But Christian marriage has at its heart the hope of change. The hope, not that you're going to end up married to somebody and they're going to completely become a different person, but that they are going to grow and mature into a more Christ-like person. That they're going to grow and mature into a more humble and loving and self-giving person. And that God's going to use you in the midst of that process. That one of the parts of marriage, uh, one of the reasons God lifts it up so much is that it does have incredible power to change us. You know, I real, uh, I, this dawned on me this week. We were, I was driving with my family to, uh, to, my, to my mother's house. This isn't the house that I grew up in. They moved when I was in college, but this is the, the house that I came home from college to to do laundry. Uh, it's the house that I came, came to at Christmas break to crash and sleep till noon. This is the, you know, the house that I would go to visit my parents in. It's a, ha- it's a drive I've made hundreds of times. And yet here I am, I'm driving to this house, I'm, I'm driving my dad mobile. It's a big old SUV with two car seats and packed to the gills with junk. I've got my two kids in the back, probably fighting about something. Um, I've got my, my sweet and beautiful wife sitting next to me. We're listening to Disney songs for the kids. Um, we're hungry. We picked up food at a Thai restaurant on the way. I'm starving. I can't wait to get there. So Haley's feeding me with chopsticks while driving. She's feeding me seaweed salad from a Thai restaurant. And I think to myself, I am a different person than I was when I pulled up to this house at 18, at 19, at 22. Uh, I'm not the same person with more stuff, more people with me. I'm a different person. I, I like seaweed salad now, right? Um, I have a, a level of, of freedom uh, and freedom from embarrassment with somebody to attempt to eat it by chopsticks in a moving vehicle. Um, not recommended. Um, I've grown as responsibilities have come into my life through children. I've grown um, as I've had to learn to, to live my life uh, with, my, with Haley, with my wife. That I'm a, I'm a changed person, not just the same person with different stuff around me. And that's That's part of why God calls us to marriage. It's because each of us is in desperate need of changing. Uh, Each one of us uh, comes into every relationship in our lives, whether you're married or single, uh, regardless of your relationships, each one of us brings a fundamental commitment to ourselves, a fundamental commitment to getting our own way. And what Paul calls us to here is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He starts by saying, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So he calls wives uh, to submit to the husband as though they're submitting to Christ. He doesn't say submit to your husband when he is Christ-like. He doesn't say submit to him when he is loving and tender and gentle and wonderful. It's submit to him as though he 
as, as though you're doing it for Jesus, not just for him. And if he had stopped there, a Roman household would have been able to read this and thought, yeah, submit. You know, this is a, wives should submit to husbands. This is exactly what we've always said. But then he gets to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here's the logic. It's husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. But, Christ, but, but husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He laid down his life to the point of death. Right? So unless you feel too good about this, husbands, and think, yeah, you know what? I, my wife should be submitting to me. Yes. And you're to submit to her and to the, and to, if it kills you, to the point of shedding your life for hers, to the part of laying down everything that you hold dear so that she would flourish. It says here, as Christ laid down his life for the church so that she would be perfect, so that she would be spotless, so that she would flourish and grow and be all that she could be. Husbands, lay down your lives. Lay down yourselves for your wives as well. The crucible of marriage is that this is incredibly difficult uh, for each and every one of us. It's incredibly hard. Uh, each one of us uh, chokes on submission. But the truth is that if you struggle with submission, you will struggle with Christianity at every, at every point. The, the unity that Paul is calling the church to, what Paul's going to call Christians to in every relationship, is the love of Christ. It's self-giving, life-relinquishing love for one another. So what does this mean? Uh, what does this mean practically in our marriages to submit to one another. Well, I think we see what it means, maybe, more, maybe most clearly, we're going to talk about a couple things, but I think most clearly in the way that we treat our sin in our marriages, the ways that we repent to one another. To submit to one another in marriage means that you have two spouses in a marriage, both of whom are treating their own sin and selfishness as the biggest problem and the biggest threat to the marriage. Imagine if you're married, how different your marriage would be if you really honestly thought that the biggest problem in your marriage was you. It was your selfishness. It was your slowness to change. It was your slowness to admit when you're wrong. If you were to fundamentally believe that the biggest threat to our marriage is my selfishness and my sin, if we don't make it, it's going to be because of me, because I'm the problem. Now, of course, most of us don't do that. Most of us, I think 99% of us, most of us when we start, as somebody who does marriage counseling, I can say most couples when they come into counseling are there, both of them in their minds because of the other person's problem, right? The other person's sin, the other person's selfishness is the biggest problem in their marriage. Their own sin is owned, if at all, as like a kind of the, it's the result, not the cause, Right? Well, I wouldn't nag if he wasn't so lazy. Well, I'd, I wouldn't be so lazy if she didn't bother me all the time. Right? You end up in this... I'd, I wouldn't get so angry if he would just listen. 
Well, I'd be able to listen if she'd talk more kindly or vice versa. Right? We, we get in this place where the main problem is in the other seat. But what does Christ call us to? This is nowhere harder than in marriage, but Matthew 7. Jesus says, don't judge others lest you be judged. Why are you obsessed with the speck in your neighbor's eye and blind to the log in your own eye? Right? To be married and to be married well requires you to be incessantly looking for the log in your own eye, for, the, for your own sin in the marriage, for the way that you wrong one another on a regular basis, and to be willing to, to be the first in repentance, to be the one who goes first in saying you're sorry, the one who goes first in owning your sin. And it means laying down our power uh, and refusing to use it over the other one or to coerce the other one. Right? None of our marriages have the vast power balance and or the, the vast uh, inequality and in power that a Roman marriage probably had. Right? We know from a, as a just sociological fact that in a Roman marriage, uh, typically the husband was in his 30s or 40s when they got married, and most of the wives were in their late teens. So there, at the beginning, there was a, it was like, in many ways, viewed as bringing a child into the marriage. You had to teach her, you had to show her, you had to, to walk her through everything in life. And so that's, that imbalance isn't there in our marriages. All of us view our marriages as a, a, should view our marriages as a joining, a willful joining of, of two people in love. So if we don't have, have that, you might be thinking, yeah, Dave, there's no power imbalance in my marriage. I never try to coerce or manipulate my spouse into doing what I want. Maybe. You could be unique in that. But what does it mean uh, to lay down our power in our marriage? I, I'm just going to say a couple of things. How does power work in a contemporary marriage? Well, it means if you're the, if you're the income earner, or the primary income earner, if you earn more than your spouse, that you don't approach financial conversations with a conversation about, as a conversation about your money, right? Or you don't make snide, offhanded remarks about, man, she's as good at spending it as I am at earning it, right? You, you don't enter into a, a, hit, a mine versus ours conversation about the way that you're, you steward the money that you guys have together as a couple. It means that you relinquish that power to hold that over your spouse as a way of getting your own way or manipulating the outcome. It means if you're the spouse who ends up spending, the, if you have kids and you're the spouse that spends the majority of the time around those kids, that you don't use your knowledge of the way the house works, the way the kids work, uh, to shame your spouse or to undermine their parenting or to make them seem like they don't quite know what's, what's going on with the kids. It means that you, you submit that. You lay down that power. And don't coerce them in the midst of it. It means that you take the way that you always are used to winning arguments. And we know everybody who's married knows that there's a, you've, got a, you've got a way that if you're going to win, you're going to win. Right? Maybe you know that you're better with words than your spouse. And if you say enough of them and you argue enough of them, it's going to shut them down and they're going to give up. Or maybe you know that you're the one in the marriage that's more comfortable with anger. You're the one who's going to be a little quicker to raise your voice. You're going to be the one that's going to take it from a, a 3 to a 10 in intensity. And you know that if you do that, your spouse is going to clam up and they're going to distance themselves and you're going to win. Or maybe you're the spouse that clams up and distances yourself. And you know that if you just go away and act hurt enough, that eventually you'll get your way. It means taking whatever you're, 
Your ace in the hole is in an argument. The thing that you know if you bring it up, you can try to get your way or manipulate your way. And laying that down too. And saying, I'm not going to try to coerce. I'm not going to try to manipulate. I'm not going to try to use power to get my way. But I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to lay down my life for the good of us. For the good of, of accomplishing our union, our unity. Not my own way. And in this way, Paul says, verse 31, A man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. You know, Paul was not a man who struggled with words. Uh, most of our New Testament is written by Paul. There are mysterious things that he goes into trying to explain. And yet when he talks about the one flesh union of husbands and wives, when they, how we merge our lives together in Christ, he says this is a profound mystery. This is a mystery how two people can become one flesh. How two selfish, self-willed, committed sinners to getting their own way can come together and submit to one another and lay down their lives to become one. This is a profound mystery. And I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's saying that our marriages, when they function this way, are given to us as a sacrament, as a, as a mirror of the gospel, as a way that we see the gospel and experience the gospel, the grace of God in Christ, in profound ways. So the hope for our marriage, and we'll be brief here. He says in verse 33, However, let each one of you, speaking of husbands, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, your marriage is the context in which you learn to both give and receive grace. In this calling that he gives us to husbands to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands, is the venue in which you will experience, uh, in some places, the ways that, that, that grace and love are the most difficult to give for you, but where they're also the most precious to receive. Wives, love your husbands. I mean, sorry, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loves the church, cherishing them and nourishing them. Guys, this means, husbands, this means that your marriage, your wife, gets all of your heart. She deserves your absolute very best. There's something that happens in guys where we become passive in our marriages. It's really easy for it to happen. Work takes the best of us, and home gets what's left. Right? Your relationship gets what's left. I do this. Do you think it's easier to preach about marriage or to have a marriage? <laughs> right? Do you think it's easier to talk about marriage to a big group of people or to awkwardly enter into a difficult conversation with with your wife, right? Marriage is mysterious and it's difficult. Most of us men don't feel like we have the right answers. We don't feel like we know what we're doing. The conversations can be scary. The, intima the intimacy feels exposing. And so we retreat back into the things that we know better, like work and fantasy football, I guess. But to love your wife, to give yourself to her, to lay your life down for her, to be, to be the head as Paul describes it, means to lead by submission, by laying down your life, by being the first one. When something's off kilter in your marriage, it doesn't mean that you tiptoe around your wife until she decides to bring it up, right? It doesn't mean that you assume everything's great until you find out it's not. 
It means that you're the one that says, honey, I think we need to talk about this. There's something between us that we need to deal with. Here's what I think I'm doing. What, here, here's what I'd like us to think about. It means that your wife, your marriage, gets the very, very best of you and not the leftovers. And that's a hard thing for men to give. Wives, respect your husbands. This is a hard thing to give. It doesn't say respect your husbands when he's respectable. Right? It doesn't say respect your husband. It doesn't say treat every day is an opportunity for your husband to prove whether or not he's worthy of your respect. It says respect your husband. It means don't, don't undermine him. Be careful about the way that you treat him in, in, in public. Be careful about the way you speak to him in private. Be careful about the ways that you look down on him at times. Respect your husbands. Not because he's respectable necessarily. Lord knows we're not sometimes. But to respect him as though you're, you're respecting Christ because he's the one who gave him to you. And so in the midst of this, in the midst of the, the crucible of trying to submit through loving and respecting each other, we're stretched to give in ways that are incredibly difficult. But we also get to receive in ways that communicate the grace of God to us in ways that nothing else can. Wives, when you are loved and treasured by your husband, in spite of the things you believe to be true about yourself, in spite about the, of the things you're ashamed of, in spite of the ways that you, you feel sometimes out of control of yourself, in spite of the ways that you feel yourself to be unlovely, when, when you feel his love and his admiration and his pursuit and his, his giving himself to you, you receive the love of Jesus in a way that nothing else in life can. And guys, when you feel like the biggest phony in the world, when you feel like the least respectable person on the face of the earth, when you know yourself to be falling short in a hundred different ways at the same time, and you feel your wife respecting you, building you up, loving you, you'll feel uh, the love of Jesus and the grace of God in a way that nothing else really will, will open you to. So let's pray uh, that God would use our marriages in this way in our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for the gift of marriage. We acknowledge that there are those of us here who long to be married and who aren't, um, or maybe those who are, are single and are quite happy about it. But Lord, we pray that whatever our state, whether we're married or single, uh, that you would help us to view marriage rightly, not as the thing that defines us, not as the thing that fills every empty part of our lives, but as a friendship rooted in you, rooted in Christ, through which you mean to change every bit of our lives. Lord, I pray for our marriages. I pray that, that Christ Church in town would be a church where marriages thrive, where we do learn what it means uh, to be supported in our marriages within the church uh, and to do the hard work of loving our spouse as we've been loved in Christ, of giving ourselves to one another as Christ gave himself to us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would uh, help our marriages to be mirrors of the mystery uh, that we have in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.